Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right, so we are we're in John here, and we're we're in a new chapter this week, John 18. So we're going to kind of see a bit of a change of content in the Gospel of John. Um, so much of what John has featured to this point has been the words of Jesus as he's interacted with different people all over Israel. We've seen some miracles and some healings as well, but a lot of what we've studied has been what Jesus has said. And this makes sense since John's objective by writing his gospel is to incite faith in the readers of this. So for a little while here, starting now in John 18, we're going to see more of what happens to Jesus more than necessarily his teachings or a message or a long conversation or something like that. There are some key moments that we'll hear Jesus say something that we should focus on, but for the next couple of chapters, the narrative will be more about the events in his life. For many of us, this might become or this might be familiar ground that we're going to walk on for the next uh, few weeks. A lot of this uh, story is something that we look at at Easter time every year. But I'm actually looking forward to looking at these events without the distraction or the pressure of all the other events that we kind of fill our lives with at Easter time. You know, like we get ready for family to come over. It's like, okay, we got Good Friday service. We got Sunday. We got to be places. We got stuff to do. I, I'm actually looking forward to, to going through the events of Jesus's um, arrest and crucifixion and resurrection without any other holiday necessarily to distract us. I mean, that might sound kind of goofy, but I think we're going to be able to go slowly through this. We're going to be able to see some, some details that might be lost on us other years. We're going to be able to pick up on some subtleties. So I'm excited to, to walk through this with you. So my encouragement for you for the next few chapters of John is to relax. Just relax and drink in this familiar story, but allow some new truth perhaps to linger in your life I would encourage you to wonder and to think along with me. That's kind of how I tend to look at things. I, I ask questions and I wonder about details and I put myself in the shoes of the people who may have been there and it helps us to relate and appreciate what Jesus was doing and, and going through for our behalf. So let's pray and then we'll get into John 18. Father God, your son is amazing. And we're so glad that you sent him here to this earth. I think sometimes these stories are so familiar that we just kind of, yeah, 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 we know that. We've heard that one before. We can just kind of brush past these things. But Lord, I pray that there would be a new perspective, not necessarily like new information or anything like that, that, that catches our attention, but there would be a new perspective on our behalf because your Holy Spirit wants to draw us nearer to you. Help us to appreciate things that we maybe haven't stopped to think about before. Help us to wonder, Lord Jesus, about your perspective on this whole thing. Help us to wonder how this still changes our lives dramatically and forever if we consider these things today and we take them to heart. Lord, we just ask that you would cause us to enter in and to, to be a part of this story. To not just say this is a neat historical you know, dialogue or a neat historical event that we're studying, but this is us that we're reading about here because everything that you do is to save us from our sins, to give us a new life 
to help us be a part of living and breathing in your kingdom. Just open our minds, open our hearts to your glory in this time. Amen. All right. So chapter 18 starts like this. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. So the Kidron Valley is, you guessed it, a valley. It's, uh, if, you see, if you know where Jerusalem is, Jerusalem is up on the west side of this valley, and to the east of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples, they've now left the upper room where they have been from chapters 13 through 17. We've heard lots of teaching and lots of conversation over those chapters that all took place in the upper room. And now they've left that place and they're walking through this valley across to where they are going to be in this grove of olive trees on the eastern slope. Matthew and Mark's gospel, they call this place Gethsemane. So if you've ever wondered, you know, Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, you know, the Kidron Valley, where are these places? Sometimes they're actually similar names for the same place or different names for the same place. So the Mount of Olives is Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. This place is familiar to Jesus and his disciples. It's not like he just said, hey, you guys want to go check out this place? We've never been there before, but this is a familiar place to them. Jesus had often gone there to pray and he had brought his disciples there. It was a place of refuge and retreat from the busyness of ministry where they could be together and fellowship and pray and focus on God and and have a little time to themselves. In verse 2, it says, Judas the betrayer knew this place. Because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. It's kind of sick, isn't it? Like when we, when we see the familiarity and the love that Jesus showed Judas. And, he's, and this is their spot. This is like their hangout. And Judas says, oh, I know where I can get him, right? The betrayer understood where Jesus would be. He used his familiarity with Jesus to his advantage in order to hand him over. So Judas hasn't been with Jesus or the disciples for for a few chapters now in John, since John 13, verse 30, to be exact. Even though we've covered five whole chapters of John since we last heard from Judas, not much time has actually passed. It's still the same evening of the Last Supper where Jesus revealed that Judas would betray him and even told him in John 13, 27, hurry and do what you're going to do. And this is it. We're about to see what Jesus told Judas to hurry up and do. Of course, Judas knew this spot, this olive grove would be the place that he should probably go and look for Jesus. So that's exactly what happens. Verse 3. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. So he stepped forward, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell on the ground. The leading priests and Pharisees at this time were eager to make sure that Jesus or that Judas had everything that he needed so that Jesus wouldn't slip through their fingers like he had on previous occasions. 
So Judas shows up in the olive grove with Roman soldiers and temple guards. Likely it was the temple guards who were there to make the actual arrest of Jesus. And the Roman soldiers were there to make sure that nothing got out of hand. Rome didn't like riots. And so their soldiers who were stationed all over the Roman Empire were instructed to keep order and make sure that people didn't riot or get crazy or or have anything get out of hand. Jesus doesn't resist the arrest, if you've noticed, and he even, or, or try to even evade his betrayer. He doesn't run away. He doesn't say, oh, you got the wrong guy. I'm not him. You know, nothing like that. He doesn't plead his innocence and say that I've done nothing worthy of being arrested. But as a matter of fact, Jesus knows his arrest is part of God's plan. He knew everything that was going to happen in the next hours of his life, in the next couple of days. With this in mind, Jesus willingly reveals his identity to this group that has come to find him. But when Jesus says, I am he, he does more than just admit that he is Jesus the Nazarene, this guy that they're looking for. But, but by saying, I am he, Jesus identifies himself as God. When Moses experienced God through the burning bush on Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses calling himself, I am who I am. The phrase I am appears in a couple of different forms throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But anytime you hear God or Jesus saying something like I am, it always means I am God. I am eternal. I am sovereign. Jesus is saying the same thing here that God said to Moses in the burning bush. I am God. When Jesus makes this declaration of his divinity saying, I am he, why did the soldiers in the temple guards draw back and fall to the ground? Was it surprising that they found the right guy and they're just like, wow, we got really lucky? Or was it something else? John's gospel, interestingly enough, is the only one that includes this detail of the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. So if you've read your Bible, you've probably heard about other people who were overcome by God's authority or power or presence, and they fell down to the ground in awe or even in fear. And both of these things, when you fall down to the ground before someone because of who they are, it's a posture of reverence. And I believe that this is what was happening here. These soldiers fall down to the ground because they have come face to face with God's one and only son who is about to conquer their sin. Now, obviously, they don't fully understand that Jesus is God because they continue to just proceed and eventually arrest him, right? But there is something there in the power of what Jesus says that captures these men for just a moment. And God's power is manifested in Jesus' declaration, I am he. Verse 7. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. So Jesus is ensuring that his disciples won't be arrested along with him. In John 6, verse 39, and in John 17, verse 12, Jesus talked about how none of his followers should be lost. Those verses speak about Jesus protecting his followers spiritually so that they won't lose salvation, so that they won't be stolen away from him and have their salvation wrecked or something like that. But here in the olive grove, isn't Jesus protecting his disciples physically 
from arrest and from suffering. I think the idea of spiritual protection actually still applies at this moment, even though it feels more like physical protection. I think Jesus knows that at this time, only he can endure the brutal suffering that he is about to face. If the disciples were to be tortured along with him, their faith maybe would fail. Maybe they would take back their belief in Jesus in order to save themselves from physical suffering. So by protecting them physically, Jesus is actually protecting them spiritually. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Some people think being a Christian is boring and the Bible is boring. Man, we got action, we got adventure, we got gore. Like, the Bible is R-rated. Let's be honest, right? I think, you know, when I, when I see this detail about Peter, I, I think we're a lot more like Simon Peter than maybe we would prefer to admit. This act of self-preservation is a natural reaction when you feel threatened, right? Have you, you've heard the term fight or flight, I'm sure. Well, fight or flight is what happens when we feel scared or threatened. We typically have two basic human reactions. We stay and fight in order to protect ourselves, or we choose to run away and and get away from danger so we don't have to protect ourselves. Well, our impulsive Peter, he chooses to fight. He sees men about to take Jesus by force, so with force, Peter responds to the situation. Peter takes off the right ear of the high priest's slave. I'm guessing that Peter wasn't very accurate with a sword because no one who's ever trained in self-defense tells you, hey, go for the ears. They'll never see it coming, right? doesn't make sense. Likely Peter swung wildly and missed his intended target or or Malchus just kind of bobbed his head to the side and instead of taking it in the top, he took it on the side or something like that and and all Peter was able to do was, was lop off this guy's ear. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that Jesus touches the man's ear and heals him on the spot, which is incredible, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't owe these guys anything. They're here to do harm to him, yet Jesus still loves them and says, oh, this is no good. We, we have to do something about this. Imagine the story that Malchus would have been telling his grandkids and stuff like that a few years down the road. Here in John, Jesus corrects Peter when he says, Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Through what Jesus tells Peter, we understand that Jesus doesn't desire to disobey the Father, even if it means that he's going to endure incredible suffering. Jesus is here to obey God's will for him fully and completely, even the hardest parts of his will. It's inspiring to hear Jesus understand that his suffering is going to be a part of what God wants, not just for him, but for the salvation of all people. Because he's so devoted to the will of the Father, he willingly embraces it as part of his calling here on earth. You know, think about this, this, this amazing response that we see from Jesus. Like, 
Maybe he's a little bit nervous on the inside. We know in other gospels he prays, Lord, if you can take this cup from me, and I'd love that. But if, if, it's not, that's, if that's not what you want, I want what your will is. Like that sort of prayer, he's just humbled and submitted to him. And I think, you know, I, I love that. And I think about times in my life when I, I've had gusto or, or eagerness or enthusiasm. And I think, of course, I would die for my faith. God, I would do anything for you. Right? Like that's the moments that we want. Those are the, the times where we get excited. We say, yeah, Jesus, just like you died, I'm ready. I'm in. I'll, I'll do anything for you. And that's what I really want my attitude to be towards suffering or hardships or insults or disadvantages that I might experience simply because of my faith in God. But there still are moments where fear grabs onto me so hard. And my enthusiastic yes, it sounds more like... Jesus, I hope that I'm going to be willing to do anything you ask of me, but I am scared. Man, this is the battle between the spirit and the flesh that we all go through. We know that the spirit of God living in us is asking us to obey, to never waver, to be bold, right? But our flesh, our our human instincts, it resists the spiritual leadership of God in our lives. Our flesh screams out, run away, take care of yourself. This is too risky. What will people think of you? It's in these moments where the battle is real and we're feeling torn. And I think it's stories like this that we're seeing today about Jesus that actually help us. We remember his devotion no matter what. And it reminds us, oh yeah, this is what we are being called to live out as well. If you think about it, Peter's violence is not just inappropriate, right? Like Jesus was never a man of violence. So why would Peter have done that? That doesn't match anything that he ever learned. But it's also standing in the way of Jesus following the will of God. Resisting suffering can cause us to resist God himself at times. My guess is that Peter thought that he was helping Jesus, right? Why would he have done this otherwise? He was somehow protecting Jesus from the evil he thought would overcome Jesus. These violent men coming to do his savior harm. Jesus is so set on obeying the father that his words to Peter, shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the father has given me? I think these things could actually be seen as a rebuke. It's like Jesus is saying, Peter, what are you doing? This is my father's plan for me. Please don't get in the way of what the father has sent me here to do. Which is such a mature approach, right? It's so amazing that Jesus would have that kind of heart in that moment where it's like, man, I'd be tempted to let someone to, def- to defend me. That'd be amazing. Maybe I could get out of this. That's what I would be thinking. But Jesus says, no, actually your act of bravery to defend me is getting in the way of what God has planned for my life. That perspective is just so amazing. Matthew and Mark both mentioned that it was at this point, after Peter's little hack attack, that all the disciples ran away and deserted Jesus. We've seen all through John Jesus' unswerving commitment to living for the will of God in the good times, when he's calling his disciples, when he's healing people and doing miracles, and people are coming to faith. We've seen Jesus' unswerving commitment to the Father in those moments, but then we're also seeing it in the hard times, when people are speaking against Jesus, ridiculing him, trying to discredit him, threatening his life, and now arresting him unfairly with the intent of killing him. He's faithful through it all. 
in the good and in the extremely difficult. So let's, let's take a little bit about what we're seeing here in Jesus, this amazing faithfulness to the will of God. Let's just put this on ourselves for a moment here, okay? And I think there's a couple of questions that I'd love to ask. And we can have fun with these, so don't be shy. We're not here to, to look for the super spiritual answers. We're just looking for honesty. So the first question is this. What are the good times for us as believers? What are the things that we enjoy doing for Jesus because we know that that's something that God has asked us to do as Christians. Spending time in His Word. Spending time in His Word. Yeah, that's a good thing. Lisa. Serving other believers. Yeah, serving people. Empty. Prayer. Prayer, of course. Any others? Being faithful. Being faithful, yeah. We enjoy those moments. Anything else? Yeah, worshiping, for sure. Yeah, we enjoy his presence for sure. Anything else? I think there's more. I'm going to press a little bit. Come on, what? be creative here, friends. Yeah, that is fun to do, isn't it? It's enjoyable. I like working at the thrift store. That's a ministry. It is, I've had the best time in my life. Like I'm going there on lunch hours and Karen's working and I get to go and, and give her a little bit of a break and I'm meeting new people all the time. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to pray for you and you don't even see it coming. I love those moments, right? Anyone else? Anyone ever gone on a mission trip? Not yet? Well, for those of you who've gone, did you enjoy it? Okay, good. Yeah, I think mission trips are fun. Anyone teach Sunday school here or work at Alive? Are you having a good time getting to know these kids and seeing how much they love you and want to be a part of getting to know you and Jesus together? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's lots of good stuff, right? Okay, so now let's, let's flip this question. On the other hand, what are the hard times? What are the things that we find difficult, unpleasant, and even undesirable to do, but we know that they're part of living for Jesus? Maybe, maybe what you find difficult is something that someone already said that they enjoy. That's okay. What do we find difficult, friends? Persevering. Persevering. Yeah, absolutely. Obeying. obeying. Yeah, obeying is not always easy. We don't even obey ourselves all the time, let alone our God. Forgiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, trying to defend the faith, right? Yeah. Jen? Yeah, when people reject you because you're trying to share the good news with them. Yeah, those are hard things. For me, I find it hard to be consistent sometimes. I know that the right thing is, but to do it all the time, in every situation, no matter what, it's hard. Even though I know that's what God has asked of us. So the reason I think it's actually good for us to ask these questions and to think like this is so that we avoid minimizing following Jesus to just the things that we want to do or the things that we're willing to do. Because so easily we say, well... I go to church, I read my Bible most of the time, I pray sometimes, I'm a nice guy, 
That's what following Jesus is, right? No, that's not it. That's part of it. But there's so much more. And we have to acknowledge the hard things, the things that we don't like, those are still the things that are part of God's will. If we're honest with ourselves, we live in a country where we are being conditioned to, not, to only do the things that we like or enjoy. Do you like hunting? Yeah, probably some of you do. There are stores that take up an entire city block that are glad to sell you everything you could possibly want to go hunt in maximum comfort, right? As long as you want to do it, we are here to fulfill your every desire. Do you like decorating your house for every different season of the year? Yeah, Tons of places. They want to sell you everything that you could possibly want so you can fill your house with that. And then when you get tired of it, you can donate it to New Beginnings Thrift Store and buy more, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we're glad to take your donations. That's great. Do you hate your job? Well, you should quit and get a new one because if you're unhappy, you shouldn't have to persevere. You should get what you want, right? That's the message that we're being bombarded with. Better yet... Why work at all when the government can pay you to stay at home? Now we're talking. Well, what about your marriage? Is it not working out? Well, you should trade in that dud for a stud, okay? Because you deserve to be happy all the time. Ladies, eyes up here, please. I see way too many heads turning right now. You deserve to be happy all the time, and no one should get in the way of you feeling good about you, right? That's the message. That's the message that Hollywood and the media and social media and everyone else is blasting us with. We have to identify that's not the message of the gospel. Is it wrong to enjoy these things? No. It's not evil to enjoy yourself or to go hunting or to decorate your home or to have a satisfying career or to have a good marriage. But when we only live here on earth for our happiness and believe that we deserve to be happy all the time, that attitude can sneak into our faith. Watch out for that. Then when we're faced with an especially hard test or something that could cost us in some way, we might be less likely to endure because it doesn't seem like a happy experience. Ease and comfort, no matter what, is not the attitude that we see in the life of faith that Jesus has modeled for us or called us to. In Luke 9, verse 23, it says this, Then he said to them all, then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Let's face it, we're usually not that good at saying no to ourselves, denying ourselves. But Jesus says that that is a condition of discipleship. Denying ourselves means saying no to what we may prefer in favor of what Jesus is asking us to do. Last Saturday at Imagine, we talked about living for the eternal instead of the temporary, and I borrowed uh, something that I saw Francis Chan use. It's a rope. And on this rope, there's a little piece of tape at the end, okay? So this rope is our life. It goes on a long time. It goes out this door, and it goes down the stairs, up into the lobby, and down the street. It just goes on forever. Okay, this rope isn't quite that long. It's actually 100 feet. But I want you to pretend that this rope represents your life, and it starts here, and it goes on forever, right? But if you notice, there's a piece of tape at the end of this rope. This represents your temporary life here on earth. You see how short it is. It's not very long. You're born here, you die here, and then you live eternally, hopefully with Christ, 
for the rest of your life, right? For the entire eternity that it is. See, here's the thing. When we live for this part of the life, we're living for the wrong part because this is temporary. And everything that we do here, we don't get to keep it unless we're doing it in preparation for here, right? So that means a little bit of suffering here for these few years that we're going to be on earth, we can handle it. God is with us. He's our strength. He's our comfort. He's our salvation. And as we endure a little bit of suffering, oh boy, there's a ton of glory that's waiting for us, right? So we have to understand the value of living for what is eternal instead of living for what is temporary. I think this is what Jesus really, really understood so perfectly. We, we talked about this last week in John 17 as Jesus was praying. He had his eye on eternity. He wasn't praying God, help us to have a nice day. And God, I I pray that, you know, lunch is going to be good. And maybe we could find some different food instead of the same stuff we're eating all the time. He's like, no, God, protect these ones because they are your messengers. I'm going to leave them. I was protecting them while I was here, but now they are in your hands. Help them to carry on because they are the ones who are going to carry on the message that brings people to salvation, right? That's an eye on eternity, living not for what is temporary, The Bible talks in many places, actually, about the idea of temporary versus eternal. One of those places is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, where it says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So the hard things, the things that we listed before, When we were answering questions together, things that we said are difficult or unpleasant, but we know that Jesus has called them to do them, called us to do them at their worst. Those things are momentary just for a moment, right? And as we endure them, as we stay committed to Jesus, we are promised in this verse that these momentarily hard things are working to secure something eternally good and glorious life in heaven with Jesus, where our faith here on earth that we maintain will be rewarded. What a good deal, right? We invest a little bit of time. The average age of of Americans, I looked it up on Google, and Google's never wrong about anything, is 77 years. 77 years on average, we can endure a little bit of grief and difficulty for 77 years if we're focused on Jesus Christ. Would you trade in 77 years for eternal glory? I would. That's the way I'm living my life. I don't want to have my life focused on what I can get and enjoy here and now. And of course, we want to still be happy. But I think the joy of the Lord, that's where our strength comes from, right? The very next verse, 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So, or in light of what we just read, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. I love that. So because the reward is coming in eternal life and the reward is not here, and it's hard for a little while, but we know it's going to be glorious because we know that that's the truth. We don't live for what's here. We don't focus on what's here. We focus on what's coming next. We run with our eyes focused on heaven, setting our minds on things above, not on earthly things, right? On what's good and pure and true and right and lovely and admirable. All these things, excellent and worthy of praise. That's the stuff that we think of here. We can't see eternal life with Jesus because we're not there yet. 
We can't see the, the mansion that he's building for you and me in heaven. We don't see the rewards piling up necessarily, but we're told that that's happening. And even though we can't see it, we can still focus on it. Isn't that good? Like the hope that we have to endure hardships here on earth, just like Jesus did, the Bible fills that all out for us so that we don't live mindless lives, but we live focused lives with eternity in mind. Imagine going through life and never considering what was to come after life on earth was over. Imagine never looking forward to eternal life and spending our whole lives living for the here and now, only what we can see. A person like this may be happy for some moments, but will experience eternal sorrow because they lived for the wrong life. Can you see how tragic it is to stay focused on the here and now, what is temporary? It just doesn't work out well. The reason we're looking at all of this is because Jesus is meant to be the example that we follow. I know that I say that often, but that's because it's true. Jesus is the example that we follow. Here in John 18, Jesus is staying true and consistent to the life that he has always lived, not trying to duck any hardships, but having his focus on what is eternal. Here at CFC, we have a really amazing blend of people, I I think. We have Christians who are at all stages of faith, and I really, really love that. We have people who have been faithfully following Jesus for several decades in their life, and we have people who have just begun a relationship with him in the last month. It's true. I love that. And it's beautiful. I think that this diversity amongst us is a sign that the Holy Spirit is active here and has great plans not only for the present but also the future of this church as we stay submitted to what the Father has in store for us. But as we've been talking today, it's possible for some people to maybe start thinking, Jeff, I can think of something hard that has already come my way. I knew that I was supposed to do something to obey God, but I didn't. In fact, I knew what the right answer was, I knew what the wrong answer was, and I chose the wrong answer. Or maybe you're thinking, man, at the time I didn't even realize that God could be asking me to do something difficult, but now I think it was God, and I didn't listen to Him. In either case, we might be asking ourselves, well, what does God think about me now? Am I like Peter and I need a correction Do I just not get it? Do I not understand what God's will is? Listen, friends, let me just encourage you with this. Jesus is at work in you and me, even as we ask these kinds of questions. It's not a sin to doubt. It's not a sin to fear. But it actually is what drives us into the presence of God because we want answers, right? So this is a good thing. I share a couple of things here with you as an encouragement. I believe that Jesus is growing our faith by stretching us, testing us, and allowing us to feel uncomfortable. If you think back to to lots of moments that Jesus led the disciples into, it was messy. It was really messy. It was culturally unacceptable in a lot of ways to follow what Jesus was asking people to do. If you think back to lots of the moments uh, that Jesus was leading the disciples, they'd be like, whoa, Jesus, I don't, I'm not sure if that's a good idea. And they would dig in their heels. They disagreed with him. They thought that they knew better. Jesus led them into Samaria, which they thought was a bad idea. They got into trouble with the religious leaders over and over again. Jesus asked them to do things that he knew they couldn't do, like feeding the 5,000. 
None of these guys nailed it the first time. None of them were consistently in the right as Jesus wanted them to respond. And because of that, did Jesus ever say, guys, you know, this whole disciple thing, I just don't think it's working out. Thanks for applying. Thanks for coming. But I think I'm going to have to let you go. No, that's not what he did at all. Jesus kept working in them. Jesus kept putting them in different situations where they had to learn to trust him and understand his will and his ways. Friends, you and I are disciples too. Right here, right now, we are the ones who God is giving more and more chances to learn his will and his ways. We're living in this life following Jesus. He's going to keep giving us chances to say yes to him, even though he knows it's hard for us to do so. He's going to keep asking us to fix our eyes on what is eternal and what we can't see. He's going to give us chances to endure difficulties and hardships and learn to forgive and to pray for our enemies and develop perseverance and spiritual maturity. This is his way. Are we ready to walk through this life like Jesus did? Or do you want what Jesus wants for you? Not ducking hardships, but going into them with our hearts set on the will of God, even if we know that it's going to cost us something. The other thing I want you to know is that all the way through all these difficulties that we could experience, Jesus' grace is right there for us. His grace helps us in many ways, but I'm going to highlight two of them. Jesus' grace for us prevents us from facing hardships that are so terrible that our faith may become broken. Like we said earlier, Jesus protected his disciples from the brutal physical suffering that he was going to face. Perhaps because he knew that it was too much for them at that time. Yet, years later, most of these exact same disciples would suffer and die for their faith in Jesus. And they would not give up. They would not recant their faith. Isn't it amazing that at the time Jesus understood what they were capable of? But as they persisted, as his grace was over them through years of faithful service, bringing the gospel all over the world, eventually it did lead to the exact same outcome it may have led to here in John 18, where these disciples were martyred for their faith. Man, as you grow and you show God your heart for him is faithful, the tests and the difficulties will likely increase, but so will his strength and his grace for you. Remember the story of of the, the master who leaves And he has his servants who are left behind and they're entrusted with some money. Remember his reward is, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in this small amount, so now I will give you more responsibilities. See, as we show ourselves to be faithful to God, he actually says, great, I'm going to make it a little bit harder. But my my grace and my favor and my strength is going to be with you because I need people who are willing to do the hard things to inspire others who aren't quite there yet. I love how God's family works. Jesus' grace gives us more than one chance to get it right, as a matter of fact. Back in chapter 13, verse 37 and 38, Peter boldly claimed, I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me. I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me, you will deny three times that you even know me. Would that be the end for Peter? He would deny Jesus and never serve him again, right? No, that's not the way it goes. Peter was instrumental in the gospel advancing after Jesus' ascension to heaven, and we're going to see towards the end of John the beautiful restoration that Jesus offers to Peter after denying him. 
If we don't get something right, we can't disqualify ourselves from giving up. Or we can't disqualify ourselves and give up for Christ. He doesn't reject us. So living in his grace means that we don't reject ourselves either. I'm going to end with this. Trouble and hardships, I think, are actually a sign of what it means to be an effective Christian. If we coast through life and being a Christian never brings any difficulties our way and we think, man, it's easy to follow God, I think we might be missing something. Just a hunch. If we live with our eyes fixed on eternity, we're probably going to rub some people the wrong way. Not because we're jerks or obnoxious or we're just like super annoying or anything like that, but it's going to be because they disagree with our faith and our devotion to God. I'll share a story here. When I was a youth pastor, I was leading a, I was helping lead a Bible study at the school in our community, a high school. They actually allowed us to come in during lunch hours and we could run a Bible study with some students. Uh, one summer there was an administration change and a new principal came in. Uh, within the first few weeks of the new school year, after she had taken charge, she found out that we were meeting in her school because the previous administration had allowed us to do that. As soon as she found out, without asking any questions, without seeking our intentions, she said, oh, you guys are doing a Bible study? That's over. You are not welcome in the school. Please leave and do not come back. Okay, no problem. It's your school. So we left. It was interesting, though, how God's timing worked because right at the same time, there was uh, another church in our community that was closing its doors and they had a building just down the street from the high school and they came to me and my church and said, we see that you have a thriving youth ministry. Would you like to use our building as a drop-in center for teenagers? And we're like, yeah, that'd be amazing. So within a couple of months, we did some renos and we got the place cleaned up and set up for, for hosting youth and all these students that we had been cut off access to by this principal because she just um, automatically assumed our intentions were no good now they were coming to us in droves even more than we had in the Bible study. They would come at noon hours and during their spares and after school and we were eating food and playing pool together and we were telling them about Christ and dozens of kids were giving their lives to the Lord. It was amazing. One afternoon though, or one noon hour, this same principal, she came by our drop-in center. She burst in the doors, even though it said on the doors, junior high and high school students only. She burst in the doors she looked at all of her students and said, you guys have no business being here. Get back in school. It was lunch hour. They were not violating anything. They were not skipping class. And then she looked at me and she says, you are a distraction. And everything that you're doing is causing these kids' education to be, you know, given away. So here's the thing. Were we doing anything wrong? No. As a matter of fact, it was, it was some of the most beautiful and fruitful ministry years of our life. But did it rub someone the wrong way? Yeah. Did they make it hard for us? Yes. They actually tried to, to go to, to town council and get our, our drop-in center shut down. They tried to make it really hard for us. But we just kept on serving the Lord and saying, God, we know that you're in this. We're just going to do what you're asking us to do. And if our reputation is totally defamed because of it, no problem. We're not living for a temporary good reputation here on earth. We're living for what you say is eternal and what you say is good. Let's pray. God, it's so amazing how you are so faithful. And the example of your son and his faithfulness is incredible as well. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that in the, in the face of death, 
immense suffering, torture beyond anything I could possibly imagine. You are so focused on the will of God. I just pray that each and every one of us, that we would have our hearts focused like yours. Would you remind us that the things that are hard here on earth, no matter what they are, that they're temporary? Would you remind us that it doesn't disqualify us when we make a mistake and we, and we shrink away from something that's hard that we know that you're asking us to do? Would you please give us courage to say yes? Would you please give us encouragement here for, in this church as we would support each other in doing things that aren't easy and that we would choose to honor you every step of the way? God, we just love that we have inspirational stories like this from your son. We just want to follow you so faithfully all the days of our life. Amen.